Well, let me invite you now to open your Bibles with me to Acts chapter 16. And uh, we are oops, looking at uh, Paul's second missionary journey. And he has now come to the uh, city of Philippi. And uh, he is uh, preaching the gospel there. And uh, we find that uh, Philippi was the first city in Europe where the Apostle Paul preached and baptized his first convert, Lydia. We saw that last week. The Lord was at work building His church. And for this reason, Philippi really has become known as the cradle of Christianity in Europe. Because now the the gospel is launching from Asia Minor, as we would know it today, into the European continent. And Philippi was the first place. But wherever the Holy Spirit is at work, Satan is also at work in his counterattack operation. And already we've seen Satan's servants at work in the book of Acts. We saw it through Simon the Magician in Acts chapter 8. We saw it in Elymas on the island of Cyprus who was trying to prevent the, the Roman proconsul from coming to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And now we're going to see it in our passage in this slave girl who is possessed by a demon spirit. Wherever the gospel is advancing, wherever Christ is named, wherever there are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, the aroma of Christ will draw in the spiritual scavengers and vultures of Satan. They hate the church. They hate you and me. And they'll do anything and everything they can to undermine and short-circuit our walk with Christ. Therefore, I think the main message of our passage this morning is going to be, believer in Jesus Christ, be on guard. Stand firm against the schemes of the devil, for they are many. And we'll see that as we work through this passage together. So I'd like to begin reading in Acts chapter 16, starting in verse 16. And read down through verse 24 as the Apostle Paul now encounters a demon-possessed young girl. So I'll begin reading in verse 16. And again, I remind you that I'm reading the 100% inspired Word of God that is given for our edification and our blessing. So please listen with humility and faith. Verse 16. It happened that as we were going to the place of prayer, a slave girl having a spirit of divination met us, who was bringing her masters much profit by fortune-telling. Following after Paul and us, she kept crying out, saying, These men are bondservants of the Most High God who are proclaiming to you the way of salvation. She continued doing this for many days. But Paul was greatly annoyed and turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out of her that very moment. But when her masters saw that their hope of profit was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the authorities. And when they had brought them to the chief magistrates, they said, These men are throwing our city into confusion, being Jews. 
and are proclaiming customs which it is not lawful for us to accept or to observe being Romans. The crowd rose up together against them and the chief magistrates tore their robes off of them and proceeded to order them to be beaten with rods. And when they had struck them with many blows, they threw them into prison, commanding the jailer to guard them securely. And he, having received such a command, threw them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. But about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns of praise to God and the prisoners were listening to them. And may God bless the reading of His Word. Back in verse 16, the Apostle Paul and Timothy and Silas and Luke are engaging in their ministry. And Luke says that they were going to a place of prayer, the place of prayer. So they're going back to where they preached the Gospel to Lydia, where God opened Lydia's heart and she was converted. But they keep going back there to minister to more of the women that might be there that had not uh, yet come to faith. And they meet this uh, slave girl who has a spirit of divination. Now in the Greek, the word divination actually means python. And this is a very interesting word because it, it really draws us all the way back to the Greek mythology that was very prevalent back in that day and age and in that culture. Uh, python was a uh, spirit that certain oracles had that would be uh, women prophets, if you will. And they met this slave girl having the spirit of Python. And again, the, the spirit of Python enabled her to be a fortune teller. That's basically what she was doing. And uh, this, of course, is a satanic counterfeit to biblical prophecy. Uh, but that's the way Satan likes to operate. He'll take certain of the actions of God and imitate them and masquerade and try to reproduce them, of course, of a much inferior quality. But that's what she was doing. Now again, Python comes from the mythology of the Greek pantheon of gods. Apparently, Zeus made a high mountain sanctuary in central Greece where the gods could be consulted through an oracle. And this was located at a place called Delphi. And you can see Delphi is located right there. You can see Corinth and then Athens and Delphi high up in the mountains. And this particular place became very famous in the Greek world. Everyone knew about it. And, uh, and this is where the spirit of Python is connected. The, the Python, apparently, uh, when Zeus made this place, he put a female serpent called Python there to guard it. And later on, according to the mythology of the, of the Greeks, Apollo, the god of prophecy, was said to have come down and killed the snake python. Now, other versions of that story said that Apollo basically is embodied in the snake, and he would communicate the future to people through this, uh, this uh, python spirit who possessed a female oracle, a woman who would be a, a, a prophetess. And people would come and they would seek guidance and they would seek their fortune telling through the spirit of Python. 
that was possessed in this, uh, this, this uh, woman. So the oracle of Python, uh, the oracle of Delphi, that's where it was located at, became the most powerful woman of the ancient world. Because kings and leaders from all different countries would, would travel to Delphi and they would go up in the mountains and they would seek to have their fortune read by this oracle, this woman possessing the spirit of Python. They would come and they would uh, want their fortunes told. They would want guidance. For example, if they were uh, going to war, they would want to know the prophecy is, should we go to war? Will we win the battle or not? And they would go to this uh, this uh, prophetess and uh, she would speak uh, an oracle given from Apollo through the means of the Python spirit and give them their future, give them their, their uh, horoscope, not horoscope, but reading their, their future. And it, uh, she was apparently pretty accurate because many of the leading people would go there and pay a fee, bring a sacrifice in order to get the oracle to speak a word concerning them. Apollo, who is there in the big temple to Apollo is where all this would take place. Um, Apollo was also the god of, of uh, athletic games. He was also the god of music. So uh, there would be a lot of those activities going on as well. Here's actually a picture of the remnants of the temple of Apollo where this would take place. High up in the mountains you can see. Here's an artist's rendition of what the whole complex would have looked like before it was destroyed. And here's a model of it right there. If you look at uh, the actual temple again, high up in the mountains, this is the temple of Apollo. This is where the spirit, the python, the snake spirit would, in, would possess this, this uh, girl, this woman. Now here, she had to be 50 years or older of age. In our story, this is a much younger girl who possessed the spirit of, of Python. But uh, they would go and they would basically bring their, their sacrifice to Apollo. They would bring an offering and they would uh, have the right to ask the oracle a question. And so in preparation for this, the... Uh, the lady, the woman with the python spirit would first go and do a ceremonial bath. There's springs here that she would bathe herself. Then she would go down to a kind of a secret pool of water to drink water. Mr. Leffler is examining part of the walls of going down into this pool that she would drink from. And then she would go up into the temple itself. And this would be what they actually call the navel. But it's kind of a prophetic stone. It was a kind of a sacred rock that Apollo would communicate the future through. Because Apollo was the god of prophecy. And she would either sit over this in an inner room inside the temple of Apollo or she would be next to it. Now another interesting geological uh, fact is that there are a couple of... Uh, uh, of uh, uh, rock splits that are right underneath this particular temple of Apollo. And uh, the geologists have surveyed this and found these two fault lines that, that connect right under this temple and they would emit certain fumes, ether fumes. And this this oracle, this woman would go into this room where where the ether fumes would uh, become more concentrated and she would inhale it 
and go into a trance. Now, there's actually been an anesthesiologist that has experimented with ethylene gas or ether gas. And at a dosage of more than 20%, the patient would lose control over the movement. They would begin to thrash about wildly, groaning in strange voices, speaking kind of a gibberish, losing balance. And this matches exactly uh, some of the the, the uh, first-hand observations of how this woman would act when she's actually speaking forth the oracle, supposedly from Apollo, the god of prophecy. And uh, Plutarch, actually, who saw this, actually wrote some of these accounts. And this, so it fits exactly. She's in there becoming intoxicated, breathing these fumes that are coming up from the rock below. And as she's breathing in those fumes, she's going into a trance. And uh, the, the, the person seeking knowledge would stand outside the te- temple and they would shout into the temple their question very loudly. And then the woman inside, breathing these fumes, would begin to mumble incoherent oracles, a kind of a gibberish that would be written down, recorded, and interpreted by a male priest. He would actually come out and give the message to the people who had brought the sacrifice and wanting the information. But the, the messages were always very vague and very ambiguous, and they were more like hints rather than specific detailed information. So it required interpretation to get it right. Now you can tell this is uh, uh, how they would safeguard the reputation of the oracle, since in their own prophetic utterance, uh, it would be something that you wouldn't really know how to interpret it. And if you interpreted wrong, well then it was your fault, right? If you interpreted the oracle right, well then it might come true. But see, that's how they safeguarded the oracle. Be very much like the faith healers of today. You come to get healed, and if you're not healed, well you didn't have enough faith. It's your fault. But if you have enough faith, well then, you know, supposedly you'd be healed. Very similar kind of a trick to safeguard the reputation of the oracle. So anyway, it's interesting that this girl that Paul is meeting in verse 16 has a spirit of divination, a spirit of python. So she's associated with all this that's going on somehow uh, with the oracle of Delphi. She's kind of an offshoot of that somehow that's in Philippi, bringing her masters much profit. But uh, it's interesting in verse 16 when Paul says that she brought her masters much profit by fortune telling. That word fortune telling in Greek actually comes from a word which means manic, which means she would also go through an uncontrolled, erratic, energetic kind of behavior and come under the trance of the Spirit's influence and speak a gibberish of sorts that would have to be later interpreted. So very similar to what's going on in the Oracle of Delphi. Now this young girl probably a teenager, a slave, she's been bought and and is owned by these masters, has the spirit of the python, the spirit of Apollo, and for a fee, she will give, she'll read your fortune. Now again, she must have been very, very good, very successful, because in verse 16, she brought her masters much profit, which means she was right more times than she was wrong. So she must receive like a five-star rating on the fortune-telling card someplace. You know, she was very, very good. 
kind of like modern day psychics and witches and fortune tellers and horoscopes that people uh, go to to try to get some insight into their future. People have are drawn to this today just as they were back in that day. So she was quite the cash cow for these masters. They were making a ton of money because whatever she was saying to these people, she was getting it right or close enough once they interpreted whatever it was she was saying. Now this does kind of raise an interesting, and just uh, this is a great theater because there uh, at the temple in the background, right above it, there's this great temple because Apollo was the god of music, so they'd have concerts here. He was also the god of the game, so they would have all kinds of races and wrestling events and all kinds of competition here. By the way, the Pythian games, as these are called, were second only to the Olympic games. So, very, very famous. A lot of people would come up here. Very, very powerful. But it raises a question, can Satan, because this woman is clearly demon-possessed in Acts 16, verse 16. She has a spirit of Python, a demonic spirit, because all this Greek mythology is really just stories made up by Satan to draw off worship from God, to worship to himself through these Greek gods. It's all satanic. But it raises a question, since she was a fortune teller, can Satan actually tell the future? Can he read the future? And I think uh, very clearly, he is a very good guesser, but he does not know the future. Whatever God's revealed in the Bible is prophecy, he could probably learn about that, but he's a creature. He doesn't possess omniscience. He doesn't really know all the future. It's interesting, Isaiah, for example, as he is rebuking the Israelites for going to their pagan gods, just like the the Gentiles, says he, he confronts them by saying, look, if your gods that you're worshiping instead of me, your idols are truly God, then let them tell the future. And if they can accurately tell the future, then they are God. And then Isaiah says, present your case. The Lord says, bring forward your strong arguments. He's rebuking the idolaters. The king of Jacob says, let them bring forth and declare to us what is going to take place. As for the former events, declare what they were. In other words, tell me accurately history. Don't give me any revisionist history. Tell me what actually really happened in history in the past. And then he goes on to say, and declare what they were, that we may can consider them and know their outcome. Or, announce to us what is coming. Declare the things that are going to come afterward that we may know that you are gods. So all these pagan gods, which are really demons masquerading behind them, don't know the future totally. And that distinguishes them from the true God who knows the future because he has predetermined it and therefore he knows it. Isaiah goes on and speaks of these pagan gods. Behold, you are no account and your work amounts to nothing and whoever chooses you is an abomination. We have to be very, very careful. This is, I think, a lot of what uh, is going on today even within the church. So it raises this important question about this girl with the python spirit and yet she was apparently bringing a lot of money she was a good guesser and she was filled with the spirit of satan 
but Satan doesn't really know the future, but Satan is very, very intelligent. Uh, he is a, he, he can get very, very close to the future sometimes by, by guessing based upon what he does know. He can't actually foretell the future, but he can guess very accurately many times in a general way what might happen. And those oracles always would speak in, in generalities so that you could interpret it and find a way to apply it to your future circumstances. That's, it's not real specific. It's very generalized and vague. And you can speak those kinds of prophecies all day long and people are going to find a way, yeah, that, that did happen. And begin to think that it was a, a genuine prophecy when really it wasn't. It was just speaking in generalities. But I think this is one of the reasons why we need to be careful and not trust the modern so-called gift of prophecy that's very popular within certain churches today. The modern gift of prophecy says that, well, we have prophets in the church today, and they're not on the level of the Old Testament prophets who always spoke 100% accurately exactly what they said, but they give us the general idea of what God is speaking to His people. So that might be 70% right with a few little fuzzy areas and accuracies embedded in, but 70% of it's uh, okay. And so, and people are accepting this as being a true gift of prophecy. It's very dangerous. Satan has odds as good as that. And I think there's a lot of people within the church today, unfortunately, they're being drawn because I understand the attraction. We all want a supernatural word from God specifically tailored to our unique circumstances to get us through a difficult time or whatever it may be. I understand the, the attraction to it. I'm just saying be on guard. Because these people will admit that the gift of prophecy today may not be accurate in every single detail of the prophecy. It will be more or less accurate. But they're, they're expecting people to accept it as a grade B kind of gift of prophecy. And personally, I think that's kind of dangerous. I think we need to be very careful. In Deuteronomy 18 verse 20, Moses writes, The prophet who speaks a word presumptuously in my name. Presumptuously means in the context it doesn't all come true. If a prophet speaks a word presumptuously in my name, which I have not commanded him to speak, or which he speaks in the name of other gods, that prophet shall die. The Word of God says a true prophet is 100%. And 80-20 doesn't pass the smell test. I would not trust an 80-20 gift of prophecy. It's similar to the gift of tongues today, which is so prevalent today. It's not the biblical gift of tongues. It's a gibberish. And the oracle of Delphi and possibly this other slave girl spoke in gibberish that needed to be interpreted in some way or another. And the modern day gift of tongues is all gibberish. The biblical gift is being able to miraculously speak in a known human language that you've never studied or learned. You can go back in Acts chapter 2 and study that. And there's nothing in 1 Corinthians that calls me to question that understanding of the gift of tongues. Don't trust that, that gift of tongues. 
We can, we can imitate that. We can reproduce it. But it's not the gift of tongues as I understand the gift of, uh, in Scripture. Nor is this grade B gift of prophecy that's 80-20. Because again, Satan has a record as good as that. He apparently was able to foretell the future generally enough to make her, her masters much profit. So she was on target. She could speak. She could phrase it in such a way to convince people that she was actually foretelling their future. So we have to be extremely careful. Now let's look at our message. This is another challenging, troubling part of this passage. We read in verse 17 that this uh, slave girl was following after Paul and us And she kept crying out, saying, These men are bondservants of the Most High God who are proclaiming to you the way of salvation. Now she she is filled with the demon spirit, the spirit of Python. And yet, look at what she's saying. Referring to Paul and Silas and Timothy and Luke, these men are bondservants of the Most High God of whom are proclaiming to you uh, the way of salvation. I think I didn't uh, print that exactly right. But uh, they are saying, she was saying of Paul and the others that they are servants of the Most High God. That sounds pretty noble. Sounds accurate. It's accurate until you realize that in the Greek culture, you know who was called the Most High God? That was Zeus. And so the Jews, when they heard this, uh, they would have thought of Yahweh, their God in the, in the Bible. The Greek culture would have thought of it differently as the Most High God, Zeus. So it could easily be, uh, kind of with the double meaning, could lead people astray. So it's interesting how she uses this language. That they're servants of the Most High God who are proclaiming to you the way of salvation. Now, in the Greek text, the word the is not actually there. So literally, if you translated it, they're proclaiming to you a way of salvation as if to say, she's saying, Paul and these guys, they're, they're proclaiming to you a way of salvation. There are other ways of salvation as well. If that's the way Paul understood it, I think he would have rebuked her immediately. Because clearly there's only one way of salvation and Paul's not going to stand for someone to come in and say that there's other ways. Uh, obviously, Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life and no one comes to the Father but through me. There's only one way to God. It's through His Son. And Peter says in Acts 4.12, there is salvation and no one else. For there's no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. Only through Jesus Christ. But that Greek construction could actually be understood in different ways. And I'm thinking that Paul, at least initially, did not see any great threat in those words because she did this for many days. Uh, we read about this again, that uh, she kept crying out. And in verse uh, 18, she was doing this for many days. So Paul allowed this to go on for one reason or another. Not really quite sure. But it raises the question, what, what is this demon-possessed woman actually saying here? Can Satan actually tell the truth about Paul's gospel? Does Satan ever speak the truth? Well, 
Interestingly enough, there are times when Satan is forced to speak the truth about the Lord Jesus. Remember the Lord in Matthew 8, when he's uh, confronting these demons, and they cried out saying, what business do we have with each other, son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? So there are times when demons will actually call, speak the truth about Christ, that he is the son of God, and he's also their judge. And they know that He's going to judge them at some point in the future. Because they say, have you come to torment us before the time? They know that day of judgment is still coming. So there are times when demons can be forced to speak the truth about Christ. I'm thinking in this case, there's something far more sinister at work here. Far more deceitful. Because I think Satan uh, is a master deceiver. And I think that's probably what he's intending here. Realize that uh, Satan sometimes can, can use the Word of God in such a way to distort it. And what he may be trying to do, what this, this demon spirit may be doing, is saying something that sounds good on the surface. But what he's trying to do, what Satan's trying to do, is to get Paul in some way to approve of her message because on the surface it sounds it sounds legit to approve of her message to allow her to come in almost as an innocent harmless uh, person into the into the fellowship now that would be very dangerous in other words satan really could be allowing her to say something that sounds good to embed her as a satanic spy which would ultimately undermine Paul's ministry and elevate Satan's ministry within the church if she's allowed to to stay in the mix, if you will. And this doesn't surprise us at all because, again, uh, Satan uses Scripture when it's convenient for his purpose. Uh, He will oftentimes quote Scripture. Remember when uh, Satan tempted our Lord in the wilderness. And in Matthew 4, the devil took him up to into the holy city and stood him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you're the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, and now he's quoting from Psalm 91, He will command His angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. In other words, he's quoting Scripture to Jesus. Cast yourself down. Because the angels won't let you fall to your death. They will catch you and bear you up. Now what Satan is doing by quoting the Scripture, he's twisting it. The Scripture does not endorse doing something foolish in the name of faith or doing something to tempt God. And yet that's exactly how Satan was using Scripture. And Jesus responded, quoting Scripture back to him about not tempting the Lord your God. Paul tells us that Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So sometimes you don't always know what Satan is, you know, may sound good on the surface. It may be actually true. But someone said Satan will speak a hundred truths so he can embed one lie. And through that one lie, eventually get a toehold where he can bring in great destruction and, and damage to the body of Christ. We also know that Satan is a liar and he's a father of lies. And if he's saying something that sounds to, sounds true on the surface, he's going to twist it. He's going to distort it so that ultimately uh, it works to our ruin. 
Again, he's a liar. Uh, Christ nailed him on that in John chapter 8. And we even see interesting, this is interesting in Revelation chapter 13, speaking of the beast coming up out of the earth that basically was one of the, the front men of Satan. Said he had two horns like a lamb. So he, he, he looks, he's trying to look like Jesus. He's a lamb. He's, he's trying to imitate Jesus as the Lamb of God. But how does he speak? Like a dragon. Like a fire breathing dragon. Oh, he looks like Christ, but he speaks like a devil. And I think this is the great uh, satanic deception that oftentimes is going on. That's why Paul had to warn the church at Corinth. Corinth is much closer to the oracle of Delphi. Influenced by all this belief and her powers and prophecies. He says, I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds will be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. He was concerned that Satan would come in and and speak his lies and deceive them as well. He says, if someone comes, preaches to you another Jesus, whom we have not preached, or you receive a different spirit, which you have not received, or a different gospel, which you have not accepted, you bear this beautifully. They were doing that. Satan was having a successful ministry within the church, propagating a different Jesus and a different spirit and a different gospel. All under the masquerade of Satan, who obviously made it sound good at the outset, but twisted it. And this is always a danger to the church. And so even though this slave girl is speaking what sounds to be good and biblical and and full of truth on the surface, Satan obviously has uh, very sinister motives behind it. This is always Satan's attack against the church. To undermine our confidence in the Word of God. That's what that's his modus operandi in the Garden of Eden, right? First thing he comes in and he tries to cast doubt on what God has said. Has God said that you can't eat from every tree of the, uh, of the garden? Or touch it? Adding his own little addition in there. He always begins to make you doubt the reliability or your understanding of Scripture. And then he comes right out and denies it. Surely you will not die. Satan's attack is always aimed at Scripture and how you view Scripture to undermine your confidence in it, to make you doubt it. And this is what's going on, I think, even within the the gift of prophecy movement today because there's a lot of people who are subtly being drawn to this gift of prophecy. Maybe 70% correct, 80% correct. A little bit of fuzzy error in there, but that's okay. This is, this, is a prop, this is a word of knowledge for me today. And yet, if it ever comes true, and some of them certainly will, it will implant this subtle desire, this understanding in that person's mind that if I really want God's direct guidance for my life, I need to have another one of those experiences. And then another one. And another one. And what do you find yourself doing? It's no longer your confidence in the 100% inspired Word of God. But now it's looking for another word of prophecy. 
is now looking for another word of knowledge. And Satan can subtly draw people away to put more authority in their experiences than in what has clearly been revealed to us in Holy Scripture. Satan will use the Scriptures to twist it. He'll even speak the truth sometimes to eventually turn it in a different direction so that Scripture takes a back seat to his new revelation. And that's why he's such a master uh, ma- uh, masquerader. Because he appears like a lamb, but he speaks like a dragon. He'll always show you the bait. Oh, look how sweet this is. Look how pleasurable this is. Oh, give yourself to it. It goes down so great. It's so satisfying. He shows you the bait, but he always hides the hook. It's right in the middle of it. He has a thousand different garments he can dress up in from his wardrobe to disguise his true self. And I think in some ways in verse 18, she continued doing this for many days. I think I don't know why Paul allowed this to go on for many days. Maybe he just didn't discern what was going on here. I don't know. I can't explain it. But eventually we are told in verse 18 that Paul became greatly annoyed and turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out, of, uh, out at that very moment. So Paul uh, at some point grew very annoyed, very angered, very concerned for this woman and cast that Spirit out of her, that demonic Spirit. And notice that she, the, the Spirit came out immediately. Now this is one of those cases where uh, Christ gave His disciples the ability to cast out demons. No doubt He gave that ability to Paul here. Paul had that gift. Uh, but again, I throw out a warning. Be careful about these deliverance ministries, these deliverance movements that kind of claim that every believer has a right to go up to any demon. And, and I... I I command you to come out. Or some arrogant type of thing like that. That is very dangerous. Uh, I've known people in the ministry that have gotten involved in deliverance ministries and then eventually they needed someone to deliver them because Satan found a toehold in their life. Very, very dangerous. Now we do know that greater is He who is in us than He who is in the world. I don't believe that a believer can ever be uh, possessed by a demon, but we can certainly be oppressed. But what Paul is doing here, it comes with a caveat, don't try this at home. Got to be very careful. Uh, Peter says in 1 Peter 5.8, Be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Satan hates you. Because you carry the image of the true Son of God within you, stamped on your soul. And Satan hates Christ, and that's why he hates you. And be very, be very cautious. Be very on, the, on your guard, Peter tells us. Be alert. He's an adversary. He wants a toehold in your life. And that's why I think... Uh, we, we should uh, sit up and take warning. Apparently for many days, Paul didn't see the danger here. And we can go for many days and not see it as well. 
Joel Beakey, who wrote a great little book uh, that I would highly recommend uh, anyone to pick up and read on, uh, on Satan, says, apart from God, Satan may be the most powerful mind in the universe. And human wisdom and reason is not sufficient to withstand Satan. Don't ever think that you can go up against Satan on your own, by yourself, and, he, and think that he won't clean your clock, because he will clean it. It's only in Christ that we're protected. And it's only in the name of Christ that there is power to cast out a demon. I would, if you knew someone who is uh, possessed by a demon or troubled by a demon, pray for them in the name of Christ for Christ to deliver them. I mean, that's what Michael the archangel did in Jude verse 9 when he disputed with the devil and argued about the body of Moses. He did not dare pronounce against Satan a railing judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. And that should be our humble attitude. Don't think that in any way we can just move right on into that realm and take, take authority over the demons. No, it's Christ and Christ alone. I love the way Luther warns us when he says, we're still our ancient foe to seek to work us woe. His craft and power are great and armed with cruel hate. On earth is not His equal. Did we in our own strength confide? Our striving would be losing. We're not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. You ask who that may be? Christ Jesus, it is He. Lord Sabaoth is name, from age to age the same. And He must win the battle. So we come in contact with these evil spirits and they're still out there. And they're still troubling God's people today. But we engage in spiritual warfare against them through the power of Christ. That's the way we need to approach it. Well, in wrapping this up, by way of application, and, and particularly the fact that Paul allowed this woman, this young girl, to go around for many days making that prophetic utterance that she made, these men are servants of the Most High God and they're proclaiming to you the way of salvation. And then eventually he began to see the danger of that. It reminds me that you and I can be uh, the target of demonic and satanic activity and it may go a while before we discern it. Because Satan is such a master deceiver and is so skilled at uh, disguising himself as an angel of light that we don't perceive it. And my warning to you, as it is to myself, is what are the areas in your life, your weaknesses, your temptations, the sins that you're struggling with, uh, and although it's hard to discern what's just from my own sinful flesh and what is it from satanic influences, it's always difficult to know. But to always be aware that it could be a part of a demonic attack against your life. I think I've experienced those at times and you probably have too. And even though it's hard to distinguish it, sometimes the persistence of a sin or a temptation or the thoughts coming into our mind or the intensity of the battle and the struggle that just doesn't seem to lay up might be, I'm not saying it necessarily always is, but it might be an indication that there is some type of demonic attack against us. 
Satan is not in hibernation. He's not on vacation. He's very active. And he's most active against believers. And I think to just write that off is, uh, is not wise. And he studies us. He knows your areas of weakness. That's why William Jenkins, one of the old Puritans, said that he has an apple for Eve. He has a grape for Noah. Remember, Noah got drunk. He has a change of clothing for Gehazi and a bag of silver for Judas. So that Satan knows where your weaknesses are. And that's where he'll pinpoint his efforts to derail you. We need to be wise. We need to know ourselves. We need to know the danger. The attack. We need to be on guard. Because Satan is our adversary. And if Satan cannot keep believers out of heaven, and he cannot, he will do his best to keep heaven out of us. Keep heaven out of our minds. Keep heaven out of our heart. Keep Christ out of our, out of our thoughts. Because if he can do that, then he can neutralize the effectiveness of our witness even now. If He can't extinguish our light, He will certainly try to eclipse its luster. So our best defense our best defense is to resist the devil and he will flee from us. To resist him using the armor of God. Put on the whole armor of God, Ephesians 6, to go back and meditate and study that passage. To bring the Scripture, make that my authority, not a word of knowledge, not a, another gift of prophecy, but the Word of God that I know is 100% inspired by God. Not an 80-20 mix that I can't trust really. But to rely on the Word of God. And that's the sword of the Spirit and the armor is, is the Word of God. That is our most effective tool. That's why when Christ defeated Satan's temptations, when Satan came against him three times in each case. What did Christ do? He quoted Scripture back to Satan. And that's how we defeat the temptations of the devil. John said, you young men, you young women, you young people, anyone under the age of 70, you young person, whenever you're attacked by Satan, here's the answer for you. And he said specifically to young men that they have overcome Satan because they were strong and the Word of God abided in them. That's the key. To live our life, to subject our thoughts in every case to the direction of Holy Scripture, that is our strength. It's in Christ and through the Word of God. Truth is, is, is as deadly to Satan as kryptonite is to Superman. We need the Word of God. We need prayer. Prayer is vital. Prayer is essential. John Bunyan in his great work spoke of prayer as the great weapon in the storehouse of God. We need to be praying. Praying for ourselves. Praying for one another. Praying for those who are wrestling with some great temptation or sin. We need to be praying for one another. Confident in the fact that Christ has won the final victory over Satan. We fight knowing that we're going to be victors because Christ has already defeated Satan. He was defeated on the cross. He'll be thrown into the lake of fire by Christ when He comes back. And I love again Luther's great hymn, 
that enshrines the victory that we have over Satan through Christ. When he said, And though this world with devil's fields should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God has willed His truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for Him. His rage we can endure, for lo, His doom is sure. One little word shall fail Him. That word above all earthly powers, no thanks to them abideth. The Spirit and the gifts are ours through Him who with us sideth. Let goods and kindred go this mortal life also. The body they may kill. God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. Well, Satan is on the attack, but we have a great defense in Jesus Christ. And we're exhorted practically to put on the full armor of God and stand firm against the schemes of the devil. Live your life as if his eye is upon you and prepare yourself for the battle. For the victory is ours in Jesus Christ. Let's close in prayer. Our Father God, we thank You, Lord, for this passage that reminds us of the spiritual warfare and battle that we're all in in one degree or another, one level or another. And Lord, we're just reminded of how vicious that battle can be, how deceptive it can be. But Lord, we just pray for Your grace and Your mercy. And particularly, Lord, for those who are here this morning, that might be the objects of some satanic or demonic influence, Lord, because it happens to us at times in our lives. Oh, Father, open our eyes that we might see the ugly face of the enemy. That You might fill us with a hatred for that sin or that temptation and flee and resist the devil. For You promise that if we do that, he will, he will flee from us. So fill us with Your Spirit. Fill us with Your Word. Incline us to pray that we might put on the whole armor of God and stand firm for the glory of Christ. For we ask it in His name. Amen.